to the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Lord, this is a, a glorious account. We thank you for it, that you've given it to us. And we want to understand it and to apply it to our lives. We want to grow, to increase in our understanding of who you are and why you, why you did what you did, Jesus. Because we treasure you. We recognize that you truly are the Son of God and that all of our value has been found in you because of what you have done for us. So we ask that you would continue to open our eyes, help us to see you more and understand the implications of what you do and what you say in our lives. So I ask for that help in particular in in making this passage clear. We ask these things in your name. So you guys have probably heard of the phrase, the story behind the story. It's often a, a phrase used in journalism. And it, it indicates that often you'll hear an event in the news, but there's often a story that goes behind that event that, that says far more than the event itself says. And that's very similar to the account that we have here. Now, when we read this account about the healing of the man... What stands out to us is there is a guy who has been paralyzed for 38 years and now he's been healed. He just got up and walked. But what's interesting is that's not really what the story is about. The healing is actually just a catalyst to bring about this conversation that Jesus has with the Jews. The majority of what this section of it's about is really uh, verses 19 through 47 that we'll look at another day. This event is what brings about this conversation for Jesus to share who he really is. But let's look at this event up closely. Verses 1 through 9 explain to us the main incident that caused this stir. And then as we look further on in verses 9 through 15, we're going to see why, what were the causes for this conflict that emerges. And then finally in 16 to 18, we're going to see the animosity over the authority that Jesus is asserting and why there, this animosity exists. So this incident reveals some conflict and then ultimately some animosity. Let's look first at this incident. We have John delineating... What happens, very similar to if he was going to write a skeleton for a narrative. 
a person sits down to write a story and they might write an outline. And what they need to come up with is, you know, time, place, the setting, the characters, the main events. And that's very similar to what we have John doing here. In verse 1, we have the time of the event. Two, we have the location, the setting. And then verses 3 through 6 introduce us to the main agents or characters. And then finally, in verses 8 through 9, we have the main action. Let's look first at the time. John says, it is a feast of the Jews. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting to note about that verse is the fact that that John does not tell us which feast it is. Which is interesting because usually when John talks about feasts, particularly in this gospel, it's because the feast is revealing something more about Jesus. And so what feast it is is really important. So what this tells us is that the feast is actually not what is the main focus. In fact, there's something else that's important in this passage, unlike these other passages about the feasts. What is important and what is most emphasized is this conflict that emerges between Jesus and the Jews, depicted here by Jesus' purposeful violation of one of their Sabbath rules. And we have the location, of course, in verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. Now the fact that John is so specific about this location um, of the miracle is actually solid evidence for its, its historical reliability. When a person is just writing a legendary account or some sort of myth, you read myths in ancient cultures, they're very vague about the details, and they kind of just focus on the main point of the story. What, what shows us this is actually a historical document is how much John goes out of his way to say, look, those who are reading it can go and find this exact place in Jerusalem. So when they hear this letter for the first time, or this gospel for the first time, they can go and see it for themselves. They can, they can look at the location. Now, of course, 2,000 years have passed, and over time people have had, you know, disagreement about maybe where this location is but but actually recently with some archaeological finds scholars are confident that they have found this location in jerusalem it's it's the one located under saint anne's monastery and it has two twin pools that's surrounded by four porches and one porch down the middle separates the two pools and it really fits perfectly with what john describes here so that's the location In verse 3, we're introduced to the agents. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. They were invalids. That English word comes from the Latin invalidus, which means not strong. They were those who were weak. They were dependent upon another person to care for them. And we have in the Gospels many, many incidents of Jesus going to the weak and the destitute out of compassion, seeing them in their need and wanting to heal them. Many places that show how much, how much love and compassion Jesus had for these people. However, Jesus' purpose in healing this day doesn't seem to be so much driven by compassion, though I believe that was there, but rather it's to use this miracle as a catalyst to bring a conflict between him and the Jews in order to expose a deeper issue. He's trying to get to their heart by using this event, particularly by healing this one man. We have in verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. So Jesus comes to this man, seeks him out, particularly in the multitude, and he says to him, Do you want to be healed? Now, the obvious question is used in order to actually expose a deeper issue for this man. His question is in line with some of the the vague questions or statements that Jesus made earlier to Nicodemus. He would say something to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus would just kind of miss it. 
wouldn't understand what he's getting at. Same thing with the woman at the well. And he would make these statements in order to get them to think deeper about their condition. He wants them to understand their real condition and their need for him. Same thing with this man. And note the man doesn't actually answer the question. But he does expose where his hope lies. He believes that if he just has somebody to take him to the water, that he could be healed, which may or may not have been the case. We're not told if the water would have actually done that. But that's what he thinks he needs. He thinks he needs that water. When in fact, the person standing before him could heal him, not only of his paralysis in an instant, but anything else that he might need. The Son of God. Now, you might note that some translations skip the last part of verse 3 and verse 4. It says this, Waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down and stirred up the water at certain times. Whoever first stepped in after stirring of the water was healed from whatever disease he suffered. So, the, the King James Version in particular, it's the most well-known that has this included, has this because the translation that the King James Version is based off of, the family of manuscripts, um, is a later family of manuscripts. The earliest manuscripts actually don't have the, this verbiage at all. It's missing. Therefore, most scholars recognize that this was probably a textual note that one of the scribes had on the side that over time somehow it had gotten fitted in to the manuscript itself. And it doesn't really have any implications on, on the, the meaning of the text itself, um, but it doesn't see, appear to be in, in the oldest manuscripts, and therefore it's not included in the, the English Standard Version or the NIV either. Probably was a textual note. And that's more or less universally recognized. So the man believes that this healing is dependent upon getting into the water. And like the woman at the well, and like Nicodemus earlier, he doesn't recognize when Jesus says, do you want to be healed, what his real need actually is. He's focused upon the water. He's only aware of his superficial need. And Jesus, of course, does fix this need. But he will go out of his way later to address the man's deeper need. But it appears the man still doesn't get it. So verse 8, Jesus says to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. Now we have the key of it, the main event, the key action. That once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. And it's important to, to note exactly what Jesus says to the man. So previous in, in, in a healing before, Jesus just said, Go, your son will live to the man he had heard healed before. Now he actually gives a statement and has the man do a very specific thing. He says, take up your bed and walk, because Jesus knows what that's going to do. Jesus is not accidentally upset these Jewish leaders. He's being very purposeful. A lot of people, I think, have this concept of Jesus just kind of being bullied by the Jewish leaders. A nice man that came into Jerusalem uh, had, had some good things to say, and he was just misunderstood. Now, Jesus is going into Jerusalem, and he's, try, he, he's causing a conflict. Now, he's not causing a conflict because he's trying to be a jerk. He's causing this conflict because he's trying to get to the, to them to see their deeper need for him. So that it's a method that Jesus is using to help them realize the condition of their own heart, where, where, where their love really lies, where their loyalty really is. He's willing to risk conflict in his relationship with them in order for them to see their real problem. And this is what I like to call an indicative incident. It's an incident that indicates where our heart is really at. There are incidents in our lives that test our allegiance to wake us up to ultimate reality, the way the world actually is reality of who Jesus is and how much we need him. And sometimes these indicative incidents are blessings in our lives that God gives us. But sometimes they're trials. Often they are. Like this man's 38 years. 
And like this man, we are tempted to blame other people for our condition or to be angry about our situation when in fact God is presenting this situation to us to expose our deeper needs. God sovereignly puts us in difficult situations that expose all our our vulnerability and ultimately point to our spiritual need. And if our hope is fixed on just a superficial solution or and we don't realize God's sovereign purpose behind it, what's probably going to happen is we're going to get angry at other people. We're going to blame other people for the event. Lord, I would not be in this situation if it weren't for so-and-so. I mean, just think of uh, Mary and Martha. Martha gets upset with Jesus because he's not telling Mary to help her out. We might say, if somebody would just wake up and do their job, take me to the water, I would be fine. And maybe we would be. But, in fact, we would also be missing out on what the trial is exposing deeper in our hearts. We recognize that no trial is an accident. Again, whether it's a blessing or a difficulty, they're not accidents. God designs them to show us how much we really need Him. To show us our weakness, we really are weaker than we recognize. And to show us our sin. God's desire in our life is to continue to refine us, to make us spiritually mature. As Proverbs 17.3 says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. Or may you recall 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, when Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is why God gives us trials. To, to, to expose the reality of where our hearts are at. To test our faith. Again, this man's healing is not really about this man's healing. It's about the Jews' need for a Messiah and how they respond to him when he shows up and why they respond to him this way is exposed. So let's look now at this cause of the conflict. Second part of verse 9 through 15. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So John tells us that it's the Jews that confront the man. Clearly from the context, he's referring to the Jewish leaders. What's interesting, though, is John doesn't say the Jewish leaders. He could have. But he says the Jews. He keeps it general. And some translations actually say Jewish leaders in order to clarify who John's talking about. But why doesn't he say Jewish leaders explicitly? I believe it's because these Jewish leaders actually are typifying the general Jewish response to Jesus. That's how the people respond to their Messiah. I also think that this man being healed is also an example of the general Jewish response to Jesus. So you have both these leaders and this man being presented as kind of a microcosm of the Jewish people themselves. And what's most striking in this next section is how the Jews respond to the healing. I mean, think about it. A man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. I'm only 36 years old. This guy has been paralyzed longer than I've lived. Has just been immediately healed. And what do the Jews notice? Not that this man has been healed, but that he's taking up his bed and he's walking on the Sabbath. It's amazing. But what they're amazed by is that this man has the audacity 
to break the rules, or at least listen to the guy who told him to. Notice the purposeful repetition. Who said to you, take up your bed and walk? You have, take up your bed and walk. Take up your bed and walk, right? They don't ask, who healed you? But who told you to take up your bed and walk? They're focused primarily on what the man was told, not what happened to the man. Which shows how deeply rooted their love of rules really was. That's what was at the heart of their heart. Just imagine an Olympic runner who shatters a record, a 50-year-old world record, getting disqualified because he wasn't wearing one of the approved colors of the Olympics. Or a person who discovers a cure for cancer but is denied a Nobel Prize because the paperwork was submitted in the incorrect font. Or a soldier being denied the Medal of Honor because his uniform wasn't in line when he performed the act of valor. I mean, it's ludicrous. But this is what happens when a person is, is more in love with the rule than the greatness of an account. So why are they so obsessed over these sabbatical rules? What was the basis of their authority? And... Moreover, it was actually the basis of where they found their value as Jewish leaders. This is where they invested their time. This is what their life was focused upon. Motivated out of a zeal to keep the Sabbath, these Jewish leaders had developed, ruled, and delineated what constituted work. In fact, they came up with 39 different ways that the Sabbath could be broken. Different kinds of work that were prohibited one of which was carrying the bed. And they did this with all sorts of other Old Testament commands as well. And the point is they then invested their whole lives into establishing this system in order to guard themselves from disobeying the commandment not to break the Sabbath. And this demonstrates how sin can take a beautiful thing, a good thing, and twist it and actually use it against the very thing that it was trying to guard. For instance, sin takes a beautiful thing and twists it into something uglier, uses it as an instrument of evil, completely distorting it from its original purpose. I mean, sin does this to everything. It does this to sex. It does this to music. It does this to food, drink, and even to the law of God, which is what we have here. And this is Paul's point in Romans chapter 7. Go ahead and flip there if you would. Paul is explaining his relationship with the law. Though the law was a good thing, it did not have a good effect on Paul, he says. Formerly a Pharisee. In Romans 7, chapter 10, he says, The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, So it's sin, working through this good thing, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Paul's point is, sin is really ugly. Sin can take the best things and distort them into destruction. It's this powerful desire that drives us to rebel against God, almost at any cost. And sin at its most base level seeks to promote ourselves against God. And that's how it distorts the law. It twists it to become an instrument whereby a person can find value outside of God. And what's amazing, in essence, the, the, the law can be, then be used as they seek to find value outside of God, against God. It's something that's actually working against God, while at the same time, totally appearing like it's honoring God. And the person thinks that they're honoring God. That's the problem. That's how destructive and blinding sin is. It takes something that's good, and the person falls in love with it, uses it for an evil purpose, fighting against God in actuality, 
But in their own mind, they actually think what they're doing is serving God. And just consider what Jesus tells his disciples later on in John 16 too. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. This is real. They think that they're offering service to God. They really think so. And you would think that would be obvious. But what could be more obvious than a man getting healed in an instant and being focused? I mean, you would think this guy must be a prophet or God himself, right? But what are they thinking about? Not the man, but what the man, what that healer told this man to do. He broke the rules. So it's this Jew, the Jews' love of the law that actually prevents them from accepting Jesus. The leader's response to the man is clearly communicating to him what they think about Jesus. Right? When they ask him, who said to you, pick up your bed and walk? They want this information. This man knows that, oh, this man told me something I probably shouldn't do. Which makes the man's next actions telling. Verse 14. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So John goes out of his way to record this second conversation with the man. John leaves out a lot of details in this passage. But he doesn't leave out this brief conversation, which tells us there's something we need to take special note of. And what stands out is this remarkably blunt warning that Jesus gives this man. See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. He seeks him out to find him in order to admonish him to stop sinning. In essence, he more or less threatens him that if he does not repent, something worse than 38 years of paralysis is going to result. Now, I could imagine if I was that man, I'd be pretty offended. I'd be like, do you realize what I've been through? 38 years? I don't care if you just healed me. That's a mean thing to say. It's kind of threatening, too. Jesus isn't trying to be mean. He's trying to wake the man up to his real need. And for many people, I think the thought of being an invalid for 38 years of their life is one of the most horrific things they can imagine. But this passage shows that this isn't the worst thing that could happen to this man. It appears that what Jesus warned the man about is what he develops later on in the lengthier discourse, starting in verse 19. But in particular, look at what he says in verses 28 and 29. He says, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is telling them, if you think 38 years of paralysis is bad, you should tremble when you think of the coming judgment. Hell is real. That's, Jesus, that's why Jesus finds him out to tell him this, is because Jesus knows hell is real. Hell is worse than 38 years of paralysis. And that's why Jesus goes out of his way to warn him about the direction he's going in. What else is remarkable, though, is what John tells us about this man's response. Now, John doesn't explicitly say the man sinned or say what, you know, the worst judgment might come in particular. It doesn't even say that the man didn't believe in Jesus. But if we look closely at what we are told, that after such a stern and heavy admonition by Jesus, the man went away from him, and then goes immediately to inform the Jewish authorities who healed him, that tells us something about what's going on in that man's heart. That his first response 
to Jesus' warning is to go and tell the men who were clearly upset with what Jesus did earlier. Tells us something about this man. And then look at what the next verse says. This is why the Jews were persecuting him. The man's part of this process, whether purposefully or not. He's a part of it. So why, though, would he walk away from the man who healed them and then go right to the people who wanted to hurt Jesus? Well, I think the answer is also found in Jesus' fuller discourse later on in the chapter. Look at chapter 5, verse 44. Jesus says, again, he's speaking to the Jews in general, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. See, this man, by walking away from Jesus, was choosing to get glory from the leaders. He was serving them. Not wanting the glory that came from God. He traded the glory of God for a very cheap substitute. Because he didn't understand his deeper need. His mind and his heart were set on the glory that's in this life. In Isaiah 48.10, God says to his people, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? I will not give my glory to another. God refines his people because he wants them to see his glory. He wants them to see His glory. He wants to share His glory with them. Now, some people are bothered by the fact that God seeks His own glory. And they think that He's just some megalomaniac. But what they forget is that God is the source of all glory. All glory comes from Him. He doesn't need to receive glory from us. He's the source of all glory. He just wants us to acknowledge the fact that He is the source. That we're not the source. He's the source. Essentially, He's just wanting us to be honest about where the glory comes from. And He really wants us to enjoy the glory He's created us to enjoy. The problem is, is we sell out for cheap substitutes. Because we want to take glory for ourselves. We want to get glory from other people rather than getting it from the source. That's the problem. God offers us the the opportunity to receive glory from the source of all glory. And His people have turned away from Him to get an infinitesimally small, watered-down version of it from other people. When in reality, the glory that they do get from others, it came from the original source anyway. It's just a watered-down version. It's like... A person spending hundreds of dollars a year on organic orange juice from Trader Joe's because they like the packaging or for whatever reason, when their father owns an orange grove. They get all the organic orange juice they want. Year-round, without the packaging, though. Or a young female fan of Marcus Mariota who would prefer to spend thousands of dollars buying an autographed jersey when he would be willing to marry her. That's what this is like. Our problem is that we're too easily satisfied with the transitory, that means the fleeting, and the infinitesimally small amounts of glory. The source of all glory is offered to us. And we seek it from others. And this incident exposes where the Jewish leaders in this man really found their value. They had learned to love something else other than God. What did they learn to love? Twisted love of the law. That's where they found their glory. And that's how they got glory from one another. Good, beautiful thing that it had gotten twisted. But notice how twisted it got. That gets explained in 16 through 18. With the animosity. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. 
But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So John gives us two reasons for why the Jews persecuted Jesus and wanted to kill him. One, he was working on the Sabbath. He was breaking one of their precious laws that they loved. And he would, second of all, maybe worst of all, he made himself equal with God. And if he is God, he has some authority that they don't like and don't want to submit to. The Sabbath had been instituted by God for Israel as a day to rest from their labors. I mean, the the whole purpose of the Sabbath was to teach them the application of the fact that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. To teach them that it... They just need to trust in God. Yes, they needed to work. But on the day, that day they wouldn't work, God would still provide for them. They could rest. God was training them. You don't need to work as much as you need to rely upon me. Come to me. Let me provide for you. Obey me. You need to obey me because it's for your good. And I will give you what you need. That's what it's meant. It was given to them to force them to rest and to trust, which is what they needed. But the Jews over time had taken the the wonderful blessing of rest and twisted it into a way to receive glory from man and actually to cut them off from receiving the glory that came from God. It had twisted the blessed commandment. The commandment had been burdensome rather than a blessing and they they, they completely missed the heart behind it as well. They, They didn't see God's heart. They made it a burden. It actually paralyzed them. In their walk with God. And to some extent that's what Jesus is communicating in verse 17. My father is working until now and I am working. So you recognize that the Jews problem was that they had added these man-made elements to scripture in order to guard the commands. The intention was good. But in the process they'd gone way beyond the purpose of the commandment. Again it became paralyzing rather than relieving. It actually prevented them, in the end, from actually honoring God. And the best example of how it prevented them from honoring God is here with Jesus. God comes to them. And what do they want to do with Him? They want to kill Him. That's how much their love of the law had been twisted in their hearts. Now they want to actually kill the very author of the law Himself. Jesus says he was working the works of God. And he uses that term specifically. I am working and my father has been working. The same word for work that's used. John chapter 4 verse 34 when Jesus said to his disciples, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So Jesus is here to do the father's work. In chapter 5 verse 36, Jesus says, For the works that... The Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Later on in chapter 6, Jesus says this to the Jews when they inquire about how are they supposed to obey God's commandments. This is what Jesus says. This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. They want to know what can we be doing to do it to do the works of God. This is the work of God. Believe in me whom he sent. That's your work. Believe in me. Trust me. Follow me. Obey me. You want to do the works of God? That's your work. But they had fallen in love with a different work. And I bring this up to demonstrate how loaded this term work is in this gospel. So when Jesus says, my father is working, his point is that, not that... God didn't stop working at creation. Yes, we know that he did rest on the seventh day to give us a pattern to follow after. But he didn't stop working. In fact, God has been about accomplishing his purpose of bringing glory to himself through the salvation of sinners from day one. He didn't just stop. He's always been about accomplishing his purpose. And that's what Jesus is saying. 
God's had a purpose this whole time. He's been working to bring you to himself. I am here doing that same work. And your love of your understanding of this work is what's preventing it. Preventing him seeing what God is offering to you. And Jesus did follow the Father's commands. He didn't actually break the Sabbath as God commanded. He just broke the Sabbath as the Jews had explained it. Jesus was actually obeying God and doing his work in full reverence of the Sabbath. But the Jews' blindness to the purpose of the Sabbath and their idolatry of their man-made laws prevented them from seeing the glory of Jesus and the Father's work. But what's interesting here is that Jesus doesn't correct their bad theology. He doesn't correct, well, you, actually, guys, you kind of misunderstand the Sabbath. He doesn't say that. He does something far more confrontational. Jesus cuts right to the chase by making this deliberately provocative statement. Because the issue is not their interpretation of the Sabbath, ultimately. That's not the problem. It's not that they had bad hermeneutics and Bible study methods. The problem was their unwillingness to truly submit themselves to God. They don't want to submit to Jesus as God. And Jesus exposes that. That's why he says what he says. He's trying to help them see their heart. My father is working and I am working. He deliberately makes himself out to be God because he is God. In order to expose their problem is they don't want to submit to God. And he had all the evidence of the world to support the fact that he was God. He had just healed a, man, healed a man after 38 years of paralysis. But of course, that's not what they see, because that's not what they wanted to see. They don't want God. They want the glory that comes from man. So not only is he deliberately, deliberately violating their rules, he's defending the right, his righteousness and his actions by claiming to be God. That's what they hate. Because, and this is why they hate him, because if he is God, everything that he is telling them about their understanding of the Sabbath means everything they've been living for is a sham. All that they have built their life upon up to this point is weak. Moreover, they need to follow him. Jesus demands that those who would follow him must submit to him as their God and also, secondly, recognize all of their value is found in him. And the Jewish leaders don't want to do either because recognize how deep Jesus' words go. They don't simply disagree with him. They don't just laugh at him. They don't just get offended by him. They want to kill him. They want to kill him. And as we know, they do. So this wasn't just this empty desire. It wasn't just this flash of anger because of, a, of, a, of an offense. They wanted to kill him. And, and re- remember what, to what extent on a cross. Jesus going after their hearts and demanding complete obedience to himself as the Son of God. They want to kill him because for them to do so, to obey him, would mean giving up everything that their life has been built upon. You know what? We can be just like these Jews. God has blessed us with incredibly great things, like the law. And we'll take a good thing and we'll fall in love with it. Then over time we'll twist it. And we'll actually use it as a reason not to obey Him. And when God in His Word calls us to give it up, when there is an indicative incident in our life that indicates that we need to change the way that we use this thing, we have to give up this thing, we likely get angry and we protest. And we even might justify sinful, horrific responses. 
What are some ways that God, some, some ways that this might happen to us? Maybe you recognize in your life that, that it's time to abandon some great expectation that you had. You had this plan for yourself, and that door is shut. Maybe it was for a peaceful life, being able to retire at a certain age. Maybe it was you have to abandon a relationship as the person dies, or you have to break up with a person. Maybe it's just simply letting go of your children, having to bring them to kindergarten, or you know, giving them more freedom as they grow up and to become teenagers, sending them off to college. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe you, ha- you recognize you, you're, you have to give up graduating with honors from a certain institution. Or you have to give up an activity that you absolutely love. I think often where I've seen it is a door closes on a person's ministry. And they don't want to let go. In Luke 9, Jesus says this, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, we might be really inspired by these texts on a Sunday and be, be inspired by them. God, I'm going I'm to go out and live my life for you, holding nothing back. But recognize God's word is not meant to inspire you. It's meant to change you. And the reality is, when we leave these doors and we go back into our homes, into our normal everyday lives, and these sorts of indicative incidents happen, what choice are you going to make? Know that you're going to be tempted to justify holding on to your little loves. Because that's where you've learned to find your your value. And the point is, Jesus calls us to trust Him. Trust Him. Because He's greater than all of these things. He is the source, the fount of all good. And He calls us to leave these things that are maybe hindering us from our growth for our good. And notice also how close this man, how close this man is to salvation. He had just been miraculously healed after 38 years. But he still walks away from Jesus. He had been healed. And the question is, what if you were like this man and God gave you what you have been desiring for 38 years of your life? Or or maybe longer after receiving it would you then walk away from him or would you recognize that what you had craved was actually indicative of a greater spiritual need than only he can fulfill how would you know well i think the best way to understand to know that is how are you currently responding to these sorts of incidents in your life now. God tests your faith. Do you continue to justify your sin? Well, I wouldn't have this bad heart if so-and-so wouldn't be doing this. Or if my life was just a little bit better, then I could be the godly person God's calling me to be. Or when your needs are exposed, do you cry out to Jesus? Do you say, God, I recognize this is hard. And I'm, I'm struggling to obey you, but I need your help. I need you to change my heart. 
God brings these incidents into our life to help us see we need Him. We aren't as spiritually strong as we think we are. And we're actually a lot more sinful than we recognize. And He wants us to see that. We still need Him to change us. We still need the body of Christ to serve us, to help us. We're needy. And once we recognize that need, we can actually be blessed. Because until we, we release these things that are hindering us in our growth, we're never going to be satisfied because it's blocking us from the fount of all glory. So God wants us to come to Him, to trust Him with everything in our life. That's why He says these things to, to these men when they say, I'll follow you, and He says, Foxes have holes. Son of man have nowhere to lay his head. He does it to say, you don't need anything else. If you have me, I'm all you need. I will care for you. Remember, that's what the Sabbath was for, to teach them, to trust him. I will care for you. And that's what God wants you to know this afternoon as well. Trust me. I will care for you. Follow me. Let's pray. It is very easy, God, to be inspired by these things when we're not facing the affliction. But it is really hard when you tell us to give up something we love, that we trusted in. Lord, this life is hard. Which makes us long for the time when we won't deal with the pain when we're with You in our resurrected bodies. But we know that, Lord, the trials are coming. They are here in many people's lives right now. And I pray that You would strengthen them. Help them to trust You. Help them to see that that You are all that they need. Don't let us be blinded by the love of lesser things. The love of the glory that comes from man. But to be completely sold out to You. And God, that's a work that You need to do in our hearts. And so we ask that You would do that. That we might be healed. Because we need to continually be healed. And we look forward to that day when we will be healed fully. We pray these things in Your name. Amen.